0: Alright, so we continue our study in Bibliology this morning by looking at the first of what are commonly referred to as the four characteristics of Scripture. Those four characteristics are authority, which is what we're going to be looking at this week, and Desmond will pick this lesson up next week. The second characteristic is clarity. The clarity of scripture, or another term that you may have heard of is called perspicuity of scripture, which just basically means clarity. The third characteristic, necessity, and the fourth, sufficiency. That's where we'll be headed uh, for the rest of our time together in this study in bibliology. So as we think about the authority of scripture, we want to ask, how do we know that the Bible is God's authoritative word? I think most of us would agree that the Bible is our authority, at least in some sense. But in exactly what sense does the Bible claim to be our authority? And how do we become persuaded that the claims of Scripture to be God's word are true? These are questions that we're going to seek to address under this topic. So, Let's begin by talking about what we mean by the authority of Scripture. Essentially, what we're looking at is that all of the words in Scripture are God's words. And we'll look at this under a few headings. You'll see that on your note sheet this morning. The first one being that this is what the Bible claims for itself. The Bible claims its own authority. There are frequent claims in the Bible that all the words of Scripture are God's words. Now, of course, we don't mean to say that every word in Scripture was audibly spoken by God himself, since the Bible records words of hundreds of different people. King David, Peter, you even have Satan himself speaking in the Scriptures. But we do mean that even the quotations of other people are God's reports of what they said and rightly interpreted in their context, they come to us with God's authority. In the Old Testament, this is frequently seen in the introductory phrase, thus says the Lord, which appears hundreds of times. Now, in the world of the Old Testament, that phrase would have been recognized as identical in form with the phrase, Thus says king so-and-so. Which was used as a preface to an edict or a decree of a king to his subjects. And what's important about that, it's an edict or a decree that couldn't be challenged or questioned, but that simply had to be obeyed. It wasn't open for discussion. Somebody stood there and made the proclamation a herald was sent out and said, thus says king so-and-so, nobody in the crowd is saying, I challenge that. That's a dead man if that happens, right? Because this is the word of the king. It's the authoritative word. It's not here, hey, let's talk about this. It's let's proclaim it. And so that's the same way in which when we see that phrase, thus says the Lord, To the hearers during that time, they would have heard that in the same way as thus says king so and so. This is an authoritative word that needs to be obeyed. So when the prophets say, thus says the Lord, they are claiming to be messengers of the sovereign king of Israel, namely God himself. And they're claiming that their words are the absolutely authoritative words of God. When a prophet spoke in God's name in this way, every word he spoke had to come from God or he would be a false prophet. You can imagine the weight of that sitting upon you. Uh, You see this often, actually, if you read through Jeremiah. Jeremiah had some very difficult things that he had to say. And essentially, he was told, you're going to go speak and they're not going to listen. Go and speak anyway. They're going to hate what you have to say. But that wasn't up for debate. God said, go in and do this. Go and proclaim this. This is the authoritative word of God. Jeremiah, I'm going to put my words in your mouth, and you're going to go and proclaim them. Now, not not every word in the Old Testament is prefaced by that phrase, thus says the Lord. So, we don't want to think that only the places where I see it say, thus says the Lord, means in its authoritative word from God. In the New Testament, there are a number of passages that indicate that all the Old Testament writings are the, are thought of as God's words. Okay, so I want to look at a, a few of these, more popular ones. 2 Timothy 3.16, if somebody can read that for us. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. For, reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Okay. So Paul giving this word to Timothy is referring back to the whole Old Testament when he talks about all scripture. The word that's used there for scripture is the is the Greek word graphē means writing, and every one of those 51 occurrences where we see it in the New Testament refers to the Old Testament written scripture. So Paul is pointing back to Timothy and saying, all scripture, Timothy, is breathed out by God. Not just those areas that say, thus says the Lord. Everything that we have, as Desmond walked through the last three weeks in the canon, is breathed out by God, and therefore it is to be obeyed. Since it's writings that are said to be breathed out, this breathing must be understood as a metaphor for speaking the words of Scripture. So this verse states in brief form what was evident in many of the Old Testament passages, that the writings of the Old Testament are regarded as God's word in written form. For every word of the Old Testament, God is the one who spoke and still speaks, although God used human agents to write these words down. Now another familiar passage is Second Peter one verses nineteen through twenty-one. If somebody would like to read that for us. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Good, thank you. Speaking of the the prophecies of Scripture there in verse 20, which means at least the Old Testament Scriptures, to which Peter instructs his readers to give careful attention to, Peter says that none of these prophecies ever came by the will, and that word will means the impulse of man, like Man didn't just sit down and say, I want to say something on behalf of God. right? Just write this down. right? They were carried along by the Holy Spirit and spoken that way. It's not Peter's intention here to deny completely the reality of human will or personality in the writing of Scripture, but rather to say that the ultimate source of every prophecy was never a man's decision about what he wanted to write, but rather the Holy Spirit's action and leading in the prophet's life. Now there are many other New Testament passages that speak in similar ways about sections of the Old Testament. Isaiah seven fourteen. Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And when you look at that in conjunction with Matthew 1:22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Okay, so there's the vehicle through which the Lord spoke. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Also, I want you to look with me at Matthew chapter 4. I don't have this up on the, uh, up on the projector here because it's a pretty lengthy passage, but look with me at Matthew chapter 4. And in particular, I want to look beginning at verse 4 here in Matthew 4, where Jesus is dialoguing here with Satan. Matthew 4, 4, but he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then look down At verse 7, Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And then in verse 10, Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you you serve. Now, in the context of Jesus' repeated citations here from Deuteronomy to answer, Every temptation, the words that proceed from the mouth of God are the written scriptures of the Old Testament. And in these, the citations that are brought forward aren't specifically from areas that say, thus says the Lord. Right? So, just grabbing pieces, you see Moses writing things down and Jesus is using them and saying, these are the authoritative words of God, for it is written. And so Jesus sees Moses' words as authoritative because Moses got those words from God. That's encouraging for us. It should be anyway. Jesus is looking back at Moses' writings. And he's saying, that's the word of God. I'm the the son of God and I'm confirming for you that's the word of God. Even though this man sat down and wrote it. Because it was given to him by the authority of God of God. Now looking at Matthew nineteen five as well here 4 and 5 somebody would like to read that for us. He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning who made them male and female and said therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall be here we have Jesus quoting from Genesis 2.24, right? He's, he's pulling that in, and I want you to go ahead and, and turn there with me. Go to Genesis 2.24. And again, this is another example of you don't have here in this narrative a preface of thus says the Lord. Matthew or Genesis 2.24 Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So here's a narrative passage that Jesus attributes to God. So again, this isn't in the context of here's the, here's the prophet speaking and saying thus says the Lord God and I'm referring to that and saying that's the only area of authority that we see in scripture. When you see that phrase thus says the Lord God then you really need to pay attention. The rest of it is just kind of there. You can take it or leave it. Here's Jesus goes right back in and he pulls this and he says have you not read from the beginning?" that he made them male and female and said, right? See how he's attributing that to God? Have you not read that? He who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said. Who said it? He who created them. And yet here you just have a plain narrative account. It's not attributed to anybody in particular in the sense of a prophet. And Jesus reaches back to that passage and he pulls it out and says, thus says the Lord. It's authoritative. And you can stand on that. So you have the Son of God referencing a narrative portion of Scripture without a direct quotation from God, and he attributes it to the mouth of God. Now the encouraging aspect of that, and I hope that this encourages you, is there aren't any wasted words in Scripture. There's nothing there that is not beneficial for us as Paul said to Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God, and it is profitable in some manner for us. So we're never to look at any portions of the scripture and just say, I'm sure that's not really that important. Let me get to the, thus says the Lord God, now I'm listening. right? But we have the tendency maybe to do things like that. Every word that we have is from the Lord. Look with me also at Mark 7 verses 9 through 13. Sorry, it's a little small. I probably should have broken out of two slides. I'll go ahead and read this. This is Jesus speaking, and he, Jesus, said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. So Jesus uses the same Old Testament passage, the fifth commandment, and interchangeably, notice what he does here. He calls it the commandment of God or God what Moses said or the word of God. So the authority of the word of God was declared as such by Jesus even though Moses spoke it. Now there are many other passages that that we could cite but the pattern of attributing to God the words of Old Testament scripture I hope are just very clear by just a surface look at these passages. Now When we look back at the passage in 2 Timothy 3.16 about all Scripture being breathed out by God, we should ask, is only the Old Testament God breathed? Or does this apply to the New Testament as well? Does the Bible have anything to say about the authority of the New Testament? Yes, it does. I want to look at two passages with you, both of which I believe... Were referenced by Desmond in his look at the canon of scripture, but they're worth looking at again. Second Peter, chapter three, verses fifteen and sixteen. If I can have somebody read that for us. Count the patience of the Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also did, to you, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks. Okay, that's a really helpful passage here. Peter looks at Paul's letters. And notice what he says here. As he does in all his letters. And he couples them with the term that is used... For the Old Testament writings down here at the bottom, the other scriptures, graphe, the writings, which always refer to the Old Testament writings that we just looked at, which are declared as authoritative. Okay? So Peter's looking at Paul's letters, and he's saying, these are on par with what has been written in the Old Testament. So you should have confidence as you open the Bible and you read these passages. The other passage is 1 Timothy, chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. Somebody can read that for us. Let the elders who rule, uh, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says... You shall not the ox when it out the grain, and the deserves his wages. Now, I know Desmond expounded on this a couple weeks ago, but I just want to mention here again, we have that same word, graffe used again this time in plural form. Let me see if I have this going forward. Okay. And the first reference that we have here is to Deuteronomy 25.4. You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Okay, so you look back and say, okay, well, it's, it's clear. The affirmation of the Old Testament is the word of God. But what about the second reference? Where is that found in the scriptures? The laborer deserves his wages. Well, it's not in the Old Testament. It's in Luke chapter 10, verse 7. So like the passage in 2 Peter you have the Old Testament word that is used for scripture being coupled with New Testament writings, also referred to as scripture. So Paul takes that Deuteronomy 25.4, Luke 10.7, and he says, the scripture says. Okay, so he's looking at both of those and affirming the authority of God's word, both in what has been said in the past and what was currently being stated. Now, is there further evidence that the New Testament writers thought of their own writings, not just that of the Old Testament, as being words of God? I think it seems that way in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 37. If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, this is Paul speaking, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. Now, that's a bold statement. You better be right in that statement. But that's the confidence under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that Paul had. That these things that I'm penning are a command of the Lord. Now, in that first section, again, what I wanted to do is just look at what the Bible claims for itself. That it is authoritative. But I now want to look at that next subheading which is we are convinced of the Bible's claims to be God's word, to be authoritative as we read the Bible. That's a very important point here. It's one thing for us to affirm that the Bible claims to be the words of God, but it's another thing to be convinced that those claims are true. And listen very carefully here. Our ultimate conviction that the words of the Bible are God's words comes only when the Holy Spirit speaks in and through them to our hearts and gives us that inner assurance that these are the words of the Creator speaking to us. Now, some would look at this and say, well, that's circular reasoning. You can say that. You know, about anyone. I can say, I believe it. You know how God revealed it to me. That's how I know it to be true. The problem with this is if we say, How do I know this is the authoritative Word of God? And let's say you appeal to history or archaeology, things that are helpful in some sense. What you've just done is you've subjected the word of God to a higher standard. You've said, that's the authority that causes me to believe that this is authoritative. And so that's why we say, and the reformers have throughout the centuries here, is that the Holy Spirit is the one who truly awakens the believer to understand that what I am reading is the word of God. Just after Paul has explained that his apostolic speech consists of words taught by the Holy Spirit, this is what he says in 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural person does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Listen, apart from the work of the Spirit of God, a person will not receive spiritual truths. And in particular, will not receive or accept the truth that the words of Scripture are in fact the words of God. The best way to convince somebody that this is the word of God is to read it with them. Don't come to a study with somebody and say, I've got all this evidence, archaeologically, historically, worthless in the sense if you don't get to the Word of God. The Word of God is what brings a person to understand that what they are reading is actually the Word of God. That's why Paul says this here, The natural person doesn't understand it. You could say, man, this guy has degree upon degree upon degree, and he doesn't see the truth that this is the Word of God, and he won't apart from the Spirit of God. So what's the best thing you can do? Pray fervently and seek to open the Scriptures with people to convince them that it is the Word of God, because that's how God convinces people. For those of us in whom God's Spirit is working, there's the recognition that the words of the Bible are the words of God. How many of you read the Bible before you got saved for any extended period of time? Were you familiar with it, right? And it was just probably boring to you, lifeless, so on and so forth. But then, the Spirit of God regenerates you through the words of God, and all of a sudden, this book radically changes your life. Right, that's the testimony of every believer. Now it's like that that uh, that little um, test that people give. Hey, if you could be sent away on an island for a week and you could bring five things, what would you bring? The word of God, number one. <laughs> right, I can't live without this. Right, that that that's the testimony of somebody who has now come to understand what God has revealed. This process of God opening eyes and truly convincing people that this is the word of God through the word of God is closely analogous to that by which those who believed in Jesus knew that his words were true. Listen to what Jesus says here. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. That's the confidence We have. That's the counsel I give people when I say, I don't know if this person is truly a believer. Get into the Word of God with them. If they're His sheep, they will hear His voice. That's the guarantee that we have. That's the power that is in the Word of God through the Spirit. How they become convinced is through the Word of God. And those of us who are Christ's sheep, we hear the words. Of our great Shepherd, as we read the words of Scripture, and we're convinced that these words are, in fact, the words of our Lord. Amen. I'm preaching. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm supposed to be. T- I'm preaching in a little bit, but I'm preaching. Now. I told Desmond this is like priming the pump for me as I get ready to hit that. So I, I apologize. Let me, let me get. Backwards. Yeah. Okay. Yes. I am. I'm sorry. I'm just going to keep going here. But it's important to remember, again, that this conviction that the words of Scripture are the words of God. And it does not come apart from the words of Scripture or in addition to the words of Scripture. Right? The Holy Spirit, before you were a Christian doesn't convict you by just looking and seeing a Bible but having no exposure to it and saying, that's the Word of God. Right, the Holy is not, that's the Word of God. It's as you open that He reveals it to you and you expose yourself to the Word of God that you become convinced that it truly is the Word of God. We hear our Creator speaking to us in and through the words of Scripture and we recognize that this book that we are holding, and reading is unlike any other book. That's why we have in Romans 10, 17, so faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. I have an unbelieving friend or family member. I want them to come to faith. How is that going to happen? Through the word of Christ. We have to be very careful. Listen. In our apologetics. They they have their place, but they frighten me at the same time because we can elevate apologetics over the word of God and say, I've got all these reasons why God exists. You know what's interesting? God never seeks to prove that He exists in the Bible. He proclaims. That he exists. So, I don't want to spend a lot of time proving something that God already says is proven. And that person knows. We have to get into the word of God with somebody. To open it so that they can hear it. Because faith comes from hearing. And hearing through the word of Christ. Amen. All right, let me see if you have any comments there before I continue on here. There's another section that I want to continue to deal with here. But thoughts, questions, your own experience of how I've seen that? I heard that. from my grandmother, who is hardcore reformed reform, to um, the term presuppositionalism, and she has explained it to me numerous times. And I think that's what you were talking about, for short, um, basically claiming that, the, I, I'm going to get this wrong. Do you, can you explain what it is? Tell me what you said at the beginning there. Yeah, presuppositional apologetics, well, just very essentially is that presuppositional versus classical apologetics, okay, so classical apologetics mainly is going to seek to try to prove to you that God exists through a series of different arguments. Presuppositional apologetics essentially is going to say, I'm not going to sit here and try to prove what God already has proven, and I think Romans 1 is very clear on that, right? That they're without excuse. They know that a creator exists and so on, so on and so forth. So you presuppose the existence of God because God proclaims that he exists in his word. Right? So we're not, I'm not gonna spend an hour trying to prove to you that God exists when the scripture says you already know that he exists. Deep down, and how that's gonna be exposed, even if you've you know constantly suppressed that truth and unrighteousness it still doesn't change the means by which that suppression is lifted, and that's through the word of God. So I don't spend a lot of time trying to convince people that God exists because I believe the scriptures say he does exist. And you, classical would be more of a series of different arguments. That's a general categorization that I'm given without getting into great, great detail on it. But yes, yes, that's it. That's it. Yes, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, did you hear what he said? Yes. Yeah, yeah, it's helpful. Thank you, Desmond. Okay, so the Holy Spirit, again, works through the scriptures to confirm its reliability. And that gives the believer a certainty that this is the word of God. So that authority is derived from a spiritual ministry of the Holy Spirit not a subjective determination by the believer, right? If somebody says, I don't believe the Bible is the authoritative word of God, that does not change the reality that it is the authoritative word of God, right? That person's judgment on the word of God doesn't affect the truth of what it actually is, so the the Bible, and this will be to your point here, Amber, the Bible is a presuppositional declaration from God to man. You have that right in Genesis 1:1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's a declaration. I exist and I've created everything. I'm not here to try to prove that you know as an image bearer of God that I exist. That's why Romans 1 says you'll give an account on that on that day. Yes. Yep. Let me be careful in how I, how I phrase this. That's a good question. My mindset on that is, do I want to spend time trying to prove something that the Bible says this person already knows about God? That, that he does exist. The, the issue is Romans 1. It's the it's it's not an intellectual deficiency, so to speak. It's a moral one. It's that suppression of truth in unrighteousness. Is I want to deny the existence of God because I love my sin, as Jesus said in John chapter three. People loved the darkness and hated the light because their deeds were were evil. I think that's what Paul is getting at in in Romans one. George. One phrase Yep. is that outside of scripture I mean, outside, that's the only place we can do it that's correct yep. Yep. outside of it fine mean, nature speaks of it that's sure. true yep. that's what the bible says that's so correct we, we need to prove it with the word. Yep. we need to prove it with the showing in the word. Yeah. so let, let, me, let me say if somebody asked me that question I wouldn't just be like that's ridiculous you already know it exists and I'd you know <laughs> move on I would try to be respectful in that, but I'm not going to linger there. I'm not going to stay there. I'm going to go right to what I know to be true. So that I think that has to become, again, what what is our authority for appealing to others? It's, it's the word of God, right? So if I go outside of that, if I say I'm going to spend a bunch of time doing these things, and I know I'm probably, you've got all kinds of people that you can think of that spend a lot of time talking about this and I'm not trying to berate them or anything. I'm just convinced that I, I just think that you're wasting a lot of time on something that God already affirms in his, in his word. You. Pete, I'm sorry, Peto, and then I'll come back to you, Tor. Uh No, I was going to say that I think the problem with presuppositional or evidential apologetics is yeah. that when you go the route of trying to put God outside of Scripture, yep in my experience with trying to witness people, yep. they're trying to pull you out from the framework that they understand, yes. uh, they have to remove in order to carry on that conversation, right. what they mean by prove it out of the scripture, at least in my experience, is leaving God out of this, yes. uh, saying he yes. doesn't exist at all, yep. uh, prove to me how he does, it right. even, it's not even logical, right. you know, conversation yes. at point. Yes, yes. Um, I, I do have the same presuppositional, things, yep. whether it's the fool, or, you know, says in his heart that yes. God, or, you know, things suppress all truth and unrighteousness, you know, um, it's still um, the, the issues they know, and they're angry with God, like, I yes. don't, like, maybe my kids do, because they're kids, but, like, I'm not, like, I'm not angry at unicorns, because right. they're not Yes, yes, right. yeah, yeah. So, if, if, if there's no God, why are they so angry with him? Right, you know, like yes. Always, if, you know, and if I do get to, because you know you're going to have to face him, like Hitchens has said that, when I get to him, if, if I have to stand before his throne, I'll tell him this, this, and this. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't say that about elves or things. <laughs> right, humans, right, right. Not, right. right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, amen. George? That's why we, we go to the conscience. Yes. Yes. Yep. And yep. That's where we're going to, so we can start off with Yes. We go to the we yeah, that the that's right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and you know, and apologetics in in the sense of defending the faith, if we just want to use that phrase. We we all have different ideas as lost people about who God is right so you think of Paul in acts 17 where they're they're worshiping a multiplicity of you know false gods and he comes in and he does apologetics in the sense of he's defending the faith he says I see that you have all these altars to these unknown gods let me proclaim to you this one right and then he starts off with the reality of who God is and what he demands of all of all mankind um, so they're helpful in that in that category, I think, of um, helping people to understand who this God is, not whether or not there, there is one. So, good, good stuff. Okay. Again, scripture makes no attempt to prove its truthfulness to the reader, uh, it offers no lists of reasoned arguments as evidence. God's word simply presents the truth as truth and expects and demands the reader to receive it as such. This is not to say that there are no evidences, again, that corroborate what the Bible says as true. Uh, Scripture presents a great many historical and geographical, scientific, prophetic facts that can be confirmed. And what's more, a testimony that's composed by more than 40 writers over A period of 1,500 years or so that consistently gives the same message throughout without contradiction or provable error is a compelling basis from which to derive confidence in what it says. That being said, man in his depravity will always fundamentally rebel against God's word as the truth, expressing God's right to exercise that absolute authority over him. As Paul attests in his writing, this, this rebellion is natural since man is born spiritually dead in sin. We see this in Ephesians 2. We see this in Romans 3 extensively. Psalm 51, 5. Man is said to be darkened in his understanding according to Ephesians four eighteen. Romans 8, 7 proclaims that he's unable to submit to the law of God from the heart. And as we looked at in 1 Corinthians 2.14, unwilling to accept the things of God because they can only be appraised spiritually. And so it's only regeneration that can cause someone to truly accept its authority. When the Holy Spirit regenerates a lost sinner, he or she is made alive in a spiritual sense, the scripture says. And along with that newness of life comes illumination. That is the enablement from the Holy Spirit to discern that the scriptures are in fact the word of God. Jesus himself affirmed that the Bible is true in John seventeen seventeen. Sanctify them with your truth, your word is truth. He also declared that a confident conviction of this fact is dependent on a heart that is willing to submit to God's will. And this requires a new heart that only God's Spirit can provide. As we see him say in John 3, you must be born again. That's how a person becomes convinced that this is the authoritative word of God. So the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit illuminates the believer so that he knows that the scriptures are the word of God. And again, the biblical basis for this clarity is derived from two sources. The words of scripture that are (coughs) self-attesting because they claim to be from God, which is what we've looked at. And second, the Holy Spirit's dynamic power applies that truth of scripture resulting in confident assurance in the Word itself. This ministry of the Spirit happens, again, I just want to drive this home, it's it's brought forth, it's actuated through the reading and the proclamation of Scripture. That does not mean that all who hear or read believe, but it does mean that those who believe do so because of the convicting and illuminating work of the Holy Spirit through the holy word of God. Amen. Amen. So we'll stop there for today. We're finished up a a few minutes early. Um, As it kind of works out here, I'll be kind of expounding on this a little bit more in in the sermon as we look at the uh, folly and power of the gospel uh, this morning. Forrest. I have an example. Yes. We're going fundamentals of the faith. Yeah. We talk the sermon, we talk all the notes. When we get to the scripture, I have him read. Yes. And when he reads, he'll stop and he'll say, I understand. Mm-hmm. First time I get I, I yeah. understand this Yes. And it that to do that. It's yes. Yes. Yep. amen amen that's right good stuff all right well let's go ahead and uh, and pray and we'll get ready for the service this morning father we thank you for opening our blind eyes to see the reality that what we have is the word of god and we know this because of your great mercy that you have awakened us to this truth Lord, would you please guard us against any form of arrogance that we might have with others that don't esteem the word of God as authoritative. Let us never think that it's, it's plain, it's clear, I see it, why don't you? May we always be in a spirit of prayer and begging that you would open others' eyes as you have opened ours to see the authority Of this Word. How thankful we are, Father. God, thank you for your kindness to us, and bringing us to yourself. What a blessing we have to be able to read and hear the Word of God, and even more so, to believe what we read and what we hear as the authoritative word of God. Lord Jesus, as you said, blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. May it always cause a humble disposition to stay within us as we think about the reality of what you have done for us. We thank you for that, Father. Bless our time now as we go into the main service how we pray that your name would be lifted up and honored and exalted, that our hearts would be refreshed, that you would work mightily in each one of us for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.